What mountains have we done? I think we've done... No, not, you don't have to name the biblical mountain, but the where... On the, the Sermon on the Mount. Good, we did... What two sermons in this... Did they name that mountain? Mm, no, not names, just kind of the mountains that... Um, the temp, which one? Temptation. The temptation, right? Satan leads Jesus up onto a mountain and tempts him, right? And then we jumped into the Sermon on the Mount. We did two sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. Anybody remember those two bookends that we did? Man, y'all need to wake up or... <laughs> what's that? A teacher's, teacher's nightmare. Maybe I'm going to have to move you guys to some sort of <laughs> distance learning, see if that works. We began the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Is Jesus' is what? Be, Beatitudes. There we go. Jesus' blessing for those who are in need. And then we ended the Sermon on the Mount with some woes, warn, warnings. Right? Jesus' warnings, right? The, the person who builds their house on the rock or the person who builds their house on the sand, the person, uh, the sheep, and this is probably needs to go on the church Facebook right here, mother and daughter <laughs> like snuggling in church. Ronnie, can you just get a quick picture of this and just send it to me? There it is right there. That's so good. Thank you. Um, so the, 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 the warnings, the, the three warnings that Jesus gives at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? So he gives the warning again, the house and the sand, um, the, the sheep and the goats, and then the other one, which is, somebody help me out. Yeah, be careful of the sheep or, or the wolf in sheep's clothing. The gates, the roads. The two gates, the two roads, right? The two gates, the two roads. So we're going to um, jump into this next mountain, and this is the feeding of the 4,000. Now, before we get into this feeding of the 4,000, I've got to do a little groundwork to get into Matthew chapter 15. So there's actually two miraculous feedings in the Bible. Are you aware of this? Or is this new territory for us? Brian, do you want me to get you a blankie? <laughs> no, no, no. It's, you know, this happened a couple weeks ago, I feel like. We've had some good weeks, and then all of a sudden, it's just like there's these random weeks where the temperature just goes... I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess I... Um, there's, two, there's two miraculous feedings in the Bible, okay? Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is unique because the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle other than the resurrection to happen in all four Gospels. You think of all the miracles that Jesus did, there's only the resurrection... And the feeding of the 5,000 that actually happened in all four Gospels, okay? Um, so you have this one. It's again, Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, John 6, right? And then you have the feeding of the 4,000, which is only recorded in two Gospels, Matthew and Mark. Um, if you want to kind of know where they happen, you have the feeding of the 5,000. We're going to talk about this in a second. It's, it happens kind of up north of the Sea of Galilee in this little village called Bethsaida, so kind of right in this region. And then the feeding of the 4,000 is going to happen down here in the Decapolis. If you wanted to get kind of a zoomed out picture to know where we're talking about here. Again, one feeding happens up here. One feeding kind of happens down here. This is the, the region of the Decapolis. Again, Jerusalem would be down here, kind of the center. Jesus does uh, most of his ministry just right here. It's kind of strange, right? You think if you were a big leader, preacher, teacher, and you wanted to make a name for yourself, you'd go to the city center. 
Jesus does so much of his ministry right up here, and he's going to come actually down in here and do another healing. The feeding of the 5,000 ends with this number, the number 12. Okay? At the end of the feeding of the 5,000, there are 12 leftover baskets. Okay? Now I need your guys' help, and I hope that you guys are going to be more helpful than you were the last time. What does the number 12 symbolize in the Bible? When you hear the number 12, what does that symbolize? What, do you, what comes to mind? Uh, excellent. Good, good, good. Can I erase this? Is that okay? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so we have, let's start with, I'm going to put the tribes right here. And then someone said, what else? Disciples? Anything else come to mind? Well, yeah, I mean, 12, we could, we could throw that one in. I mean, that's, that's definitely in there. Although, I'd have to do a little bit more research. There was a, I'll, I'll, let me get back to that in a second. Anything else come to mind? Yeah, so, I mean, you could kind of, if we kind of did maybe some of this chronologically. So there's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, right? And then Jacob is the one that has 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Jacob has these 12 sons, right? And that actually is what forms the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? So it kind of begins back here with Jacob. Jacob's 12 sons forms the 12 tribes, right? There's another uh, thing that happens in, in the Bible where the high priest, right? The high priest, like the, like the Pope of the Jewish religion, right? When he would enter the temple, when he would enter the most holy place, he would wear this, this breastplate, right? And I'm going to draw it because I'm really good at drawing. Here it is, right here. He would end, wear this breastplate. Oh, boy. Okay? And on each, this breastplate, it had these 12 precious stones. You get the idea. I'll draw two diamonds. That's it, right? These, he, he wore this literal breastplate with these 12 precious stones on it, right? And these precious stones, again, would symbolize the 12 tribes. It would symbolize the, the, all of Israel as the priest is going into the presence of God to plead for healing and forgiveness and to make the sacrifices of God. It was as if he was carrying the very preciousness of each tribe into the presence of God himself, right? Yeah, I don't know if there, I don't know how that would, if I don't know if about that, that, that in between there. So, um, One other thing that I found interesting, because there's all these, you, you kind of can get really down some, some rabbit trails as you do some studying. Um, I, you know, if, if we were to go chronologically, so to speak, so say Abraham, kind of Old Testament, the book of Revelation. There's what? There's, I, I, that's, that's a good question. I don't know if I remember that one. The one that I was thinking of specifically is that in the middle of the city, there's this tree, right? In John's vision, in the middle of the city, there's this tree. 
and this tree, the leaves, the fruit are provided for the healing of the 12 nations, right? So from Abraham all the way through Revelation, this number 12 keeps coming up and up and up again. And there's obviously a bunch of obscure ones. But here's the thing. In the feeding of the 5,000, right, when Jesus has 12 leftover baskets, like all, if you were a Jew in that time, if you were an Israelite in that time, like all of the, the lights in your brain are going off. Jesus is, let me, let me summarize it like this, right? His the 12 disciples have these 12 leftover baskets, symbolize the feeding and the satisfying of what? All the tribes, all of Israel. Jesus in John chapter 6, this is when he goes into saying that I am the bread of life. I am the provider in abundance for all the new Israel. Again, it's one thing to say who you are. It's another thing to show who you are, right? So this number 12 at the end of the 5,000 is a very important number because Jesus is, he's providing that bread, that food, that symbolic number that he is the bread of life for all of Israel, right? Now, are you guys ready for the next mountain? We're going to do a lot of, in the Bible today, so if you got your phone or you want to use one of the regular Bibles, Matthew 15, chapter 29 through 39. This is going to be our, again, our text this morning. And this is the feeding of the 4,000 passage here. Um, let me just kind of make this small note right here for you, because this is helpful. The 5,000 happens one chapter earlier in Matthew 14, okay? The 4,000, which I want to talk about now, happens one chapter later, Matthew 15, okay? So quite quite close, these two, these two miracles together. Uh, let's jump into this text and let's read it as we've done. Uh, take a verse and then next person will jump in. I'll start off. Actually, I'm not even on the right page. Someone start us off. called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry so that they collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could, we get, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Good. Okay, so a couple things that are happening here. 
Again, let me, let me make this too. I'll make this comment. This happens, um, the 5,000 happens in Mark 6. The 4,000 happens in Mark 8. I'm going to use both Matthew and Mark as we kind of work through these texts. Again, at the end of 5,000, you have 12. At the end of 4,000, you have seven baskets left over. Here's the regions. Again, we looked at this before. 5,000 up north, 4,000 in the Decapolis. This number seven, what's this number seven mean? It is, I mean, that's what I was wondering is, um, is maybe God was just thinking he was going to get lucky here. You know, Brian, your, your wife's not here, but I was thinking maybe God was a John Elway fan just kind of way early before. Eric, is that offensive to you, or is there a great number seven for the Raiders? There's not many great number sevens out there, so I just thought of, of Elway. Um, this, this number seven, go to Joshua chapter three. There's all sorts of history. Again, as we looked at the number 12, he doesn't just randomly pick a number 12. There is something that happens within this number 12. There's a larger context for this number seven as well. I want to show that to you. Got a Bible, Joshua chapter 3, verse 7. I'll read these since I skipped the first. So, the beginning of Joshua, just to place us in context, Genesis, Exodus, right? Leviticus, Numbers, end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies, right? The, begin, the end of Deuteronomy and the beginning of Joshua is this transition period. As Moses dies, leadership is transferred to Joshua. They're literally, um, they're literally on the border, say here, the entire nation. Remember the whole exodus, they kind of move through Egypt. They're in this region right here. They're ready to cross this Jordan River and move into the promised land. Okay, so this is kind of the movement. This is where we are in the story that all the Israelite nation, all the people are ready to move into it. So verse 7 says, The Lord says to Joshua, again, who's now the leader of the Israelite people, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. He says, Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's water, go stand in the river. So they're going to be led by the Ark of the Covenant. That's going to be kind of the, the leading, and they're going to walk through the, uh, through the water. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites, right? So Joshua, again, on this, about ready to leave the, the people into Israel, and he's about to move into this land of Canaan, right? And you have these seven nations, Hivites, Girgashites, Canaanites, Ammonites, Jebusites, Perizzites, and Hittites, right? So they're here, they're about to go in, and God's saying, I'm going to drive out all of these nations in front of you, right? Here's, here's the list if you wanted to work on your pronunciation skills of Old Testament people groups, okay? So as he does this, right, one of the things that happens is, let me go, 
all of these people groups, right? All of these kind of pagan nations as the Israelites move in and occupy this land, right? As God promised them, the land of Canaan, when he said, this is the land flowing with milk and honey, I will establish you in this land, right? These seven nations then are displaced, right? Into this area down here, right? And this becomes this region called the Decapolis. So, say Deuteronomy time, right? And then Jesus' time, you have all these kind of people groups who have been displaced, and they get displaced down here into this region called the Decapolis. Are you with me so far? Right? So when you think about that number seven, by the way, did anybody catch how many people groups are here? Seven. Seven, right? When you think about that number seven, right, seven then represents the seven displaced tribes of Canaan. And what Jesus is claiming is that he now is the bread of life, the provider in abundance for the Gentiles. You see how that works, right? Just as the number 12, we look at the number 12, oh yeah, the 12 tribes of Israel, you know, the 12 sons, all this sort of, this 12 symbolic number. The seven represents those seven nations who have been displaced. Why does Jesus go to the Decapolis, right, and and feed all these people and there's seven baskets left over because Jesus is making a statement. I say this, that he is subtly and symbolically defining his vocation, his mission, not just to the Israelites, right? But to the entire world. The once enemies of the Israelite nation have now been brought close satisfied by his feedings. Now, you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, and I think about this too, well, Jesus, why didn't you just say it? Why not just come out and say, hey, Gentiles, you guys are in, you're cool. Like everybody, you're part of my movement, you're part of everything. Hey, don't worry about it, right? Um, I think that again, as I said at the very beginning here, there's a, a deep symbol that Jesus is using here as he's engaging both the Israelites, the number 12, Right? and the pagan nations, the Gentiles. There's a deep symbol. So, for example, um, rings, necklaces, and notes. Everybody got their wedding ring on them? If you got a wedding ring or some sort of... Um, I looked up the price of my wedding ring according to today's gold prices. Um, about $350 for my wedding ring if you took the weight of it. And um, I could go sell this for maybe about $350. How much is this wedding ring worth to me? More. How much more? Price. Thank you, Isan. <laughs> That's the right answer, right? Somebody comes and says, hey, that's a nice wedding ring. I'll give you a thousand bucks for it. And I think, wow, I could triple my money on my wedding ring, right? But there's, I'm not going to sell my wedding ring, right? If somebody goes to my wife and says, wow, Robin, that's a really nice diamond. I'll give you 10,000. I'm always like, no, I'm not telling you. Know, like there is something deeply symbolic about your wedding ring. I've done a fair amount of weddings. I guarantee not one person, like, is thinking here, like, I remember my exact vows that I said to my husband or my wife, right? I remember exactly what was spoken. Um, I remember the promises I made. But listen, when you just look at this, what does this mean? It means everything, doesn't it? It holds all the power within it, right? Right? Um, 
and the one that I'm going to skip because I forgot my daughter's necklace. I gave my daughter a necklace uh, when she completed her first season at Over the Hump. She did like all these little kid mountain bike races. And at the end of the season, I gave her this, this cheap Amazon little bike necklace, right? I mean, I think it was like 15 or $20, you know. It's, and yet that necklace symbolically has so much value for her that, and you guys know Julia, she's not like the, I don't think she's like the super sporty one or courageous one or out there one. She's kind of a little bit more of a, a girly one. And to watch her do it and compete and ride, and she got crashed a couple times, and, you know, it was just such, and you give them something that says, I'm so proud of you. These, I have this stack of, of notes that I keep underneath my, um, underneath my desk here. Here, that one says trust, and here's one from Father's Day. This, I think this is Alice. This is probably also, and this is just like, you know, sometimes we come across these things and they're just, but symbolically, what does this represent? I keep this on my, on my desk oftentimes when I preach because sometimes I need to be reminded when I'm preaching and I have these internal conversations in my head like, um, your message is really flopping and this is pretty bad and, you know, people are checking out and looking at their phones or falling asleep, you know, whatever it is. You know, and so sometimes I just keep this on, on my little desk right here just to remind myself in the middle of my sermon, before my sermon, after my sermon, that even beyond a, a pastor or a preacher or what my, my vocation, I have little kids that really love me, right? And these are just symbols to that. Why does Jesus do this, right? Because symbols, when he uses these 12 and these 7, symbols create a reality greater than words. That's why Jesus doesn't just say, hey, Gentiles, you're in. Come on in. You guys are good. He creates a symbol. He gives us something to look towards. Jesus, again, is painting a picture of Jews and Gentiles satisfied, fed, full, whole, included, and blessed. Right? He's creating this picture. He's giving us this symbol. I, to me, that's the great point of these two feedings, of these two miracles. Right? This is what the Bible is really trying to communicate um, specifically in the first century, right? Specifically, this message needs to get out in the first century. But even now, as we apply it to our lives and think about, you know, kind of who's the insider, who's the outsider, how is Jesus providing bread for both people, right? Um, that's the big picture. I, I, I picked up a couple other small things that I just want to kind of share with you uh, about these, about specifically the 4,000. Because again, I think that this is the big picture, but there's also some kind of side narratives that we can learn from. Um, some real, yeah, some real good stuff in there. So let me just show you three. You know what's funny is that on my computer, when I made this, this is like bright pink. And I think that there's something missing within my cable up to the computer to make it that real kind of peach beige color. So I'll have to change that for next week. I'm just kind of tripping out on when I made this. I was like, oh, that'll be real bright and people can see it. It's hard to see or is it okay? Sorry. Just needed to actually take a break and kind of catch up where my train of thought was. Okay. Um, here's the first one I want to talk about is the wisdom of stability. This is actually, I stole this a book title by a guy named Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. I read this book a couple years ago. I really liked it. And he just kind of talks about the wisdom of, of, of staying stable in a particular place. Um, if you've got a Bible, again, we're jumping back in the Bible. These healings or this feeding happens in Matthew and Mark. 
So go to Mark chapter 5, verses 18. And let me just kind of lay the groundwork in Mark. So Mark, it's fascinating about this passage in Mark, and maybe you're familiar with this in Mark chapter 5. Jesus heals the demon-possessed man, and he sends those demons into a herd of what? Pigs, right? One of the great stories Jesus sends, and the pigs go flying off the cliff, and, you know. Um, Jesus does this healing in the Decapolis, in this region, okay? So again, before he feeds, that we're in Mark 5, before he feeds the 5,000, before he feeds the 4,000, he's in the Decapolis and he's doing this healing, right? So at the end of this healing where he heals this demon-possessed man, in verse 18, this is the last three verses of this little passage, um, Jesus is getting into the boat. By the way, let me start at verse 17. He does this healing and people are pleading for Jesus to leave. They want him to go. So Jesus gets into the boat, verse 18. And the man who had been demon-possessed, he begs him to go with him, right? Jesus, can I go with you? Now, come on. Wouldn't this be a great opening act if you're Jesus, right? Jesus is about ready to give the sermon or give a preaching or he's about ready to go in the synagogue. And we're just going to, we have a testimony, we have a special testimony coming up this morning. We would like to present to you the man who was possessed by a legion of demons and is now clean. Would you all put your hands together for the demon-possessed man? He's going to warm up the crowd before Jesus comes up here, right? And the man gets up there and gives his testimony, like, oh my gosh. And then Jesus, that's how I would do it. Does anybody else, nobody else thinks like that. But you know what I'm saying? Like, this would be, you know, this would like be the opening preacher before the preacher, right? This guy's begging to go with Jesus. Wouldn't he be a testimony, somebody who you could rely on, somebody who you just cleaned? And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus would not let him, verse 19, go home to your people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Verse 20, so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed, right? Now, back to Matthew 15. He did not have a man. The, the name of the demons were Legion. My name is Legion and I am many. He probably had a different name, yes. Right. Back to Matthew 15. Verse 29, Jesus leaves there, goes along the Sea of Galilee. He goes up onto a mountainside. Again, we're doing these mountains and sits down. What does the Bible say right here? Great crowds come to him. And what are they bringing to Jesus? The lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute and many others, and laid them at his feet. And what does Jesus do? He heals them. In a region that, again, if you're looking at these kind of Matthew, Mark narratives, in a region that just a little bit ago wants to get rid of the man, right? And Jesus says, no, I want you to go home, and I want you to tell them what I've done for you, right? 
And Jesus returns then not too much long later, and you have these massive crowds that are coming to Jesus for healing and for restoration. Verse 31, the people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And what did they do? They praised the God of Israel, right? There is something about this passage um, that really talks about doing ministry where you are, serving the Lord in your context. On our anniversary, we happened to just kind of have this random conversation about the average length of a pastor. Anybody remember or want to guess? The average length of a pastor in his particular ministry context. Good? Ten years? Anyone else? Sounds like a year. A year or something? Let me just give you some good old stats because I love some stats. You know, the average pastor lasts about 3.6 years, three and a half years, right? And so sometimes a pastor might start in a church and move to another church. Sometimes a pastor might start and move, uh, just get out of the ministry. But on average, pastors last about 3.6 years, and then there's some sort of change, right? Not very stable. 40% of church plants don't make it past year four. Do you guys understand how rare we are of a church plant to be making it nine, ten years? Like, this is extremely rare that we're actually here, right? And again, the 40% just kind of, once you hit 40%, then, you know, most churches will, will kind of make it. But there's often church plants that fail after that, right? So there's the ministry stats. Um, how about this? I thought this was fascinating. 4.6 years is the median tenure for employees. So if you kind of look at employment stats uh, nationwide, that's, they say most people stay in their jobs for about 4.6 years. And then they move on to other jobs, um, Six to seven years is the average time someone lives in a home. And then it's time for an upgrade. Then it's time to move. Then it's a new neighborhood. Then it's this or that, right? But about six to seven years is the average time. Again, if you just kind of look at the big numbers, um, 8.2 years is the average length of a marriage. Um, 7.2 years is the average car ownership duration. A third of the people now lease cars, so now you're talking 36 months, three years, versus buy one. Um, the biggest number we have on there is about eight years, right? And we live in this transient, portable, movable society. And look, that has some of these things in here have their advantages. Some of that kind of data we can say, oh, that's good, you know, we can do this or have movability or portability. But I think that we also kind of feel that ground shifting underneath our feet constantly. We feel that the world is constantly moving, changing around us. We feel how fast things have gotten. Let me go back to the demon-possessed man. Because Jesus doesn't allow him to come with him. And he says to stay home. And sometimes, you know, I just kind of felt like, I don't know who this is for. But there is a message to just stay where you are. Right? That there is a purpose beyond what you can see, that your stability is your testimony. Now, this doesn't mean, um, Joel, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of you because I know you just took a new job, right? <laughs> I'm not, this isn't like a rebuke to you in your new job, right? This doesn't mean like, don't do anything, just stay stationed where you are, hunker down. And that's not what I'm trying to say here. But sometimes what I am trying to speak against is this kind of, 
man, we live in this life, in this world, that everything is movable, everything's disposable, everything just shifts underneath our feet. And there is a wisdom of stability in a neighborhood, in a career, in a family, and in, in a marriage that, that, that is important that we can learn from this passage by Jesus not allowing this man to come with us. He says, go back to your house, go back to your village, go back to the Decapolis, tell people what you've done. Your stability becomes your testimony. Are you everybody with me on that, right? Sometimes we just need to hear that because we don't hear that in the two-year iPhone cycle that we live, or the one, I'm sorry, the one-year iPhone cycle that we live in where everybody's clamoring for the next new tech, everybody's doing that, you know what I mean? Um, let me just say two other things real quickly. I'm going too long. Recording our blunders. Again, Matthew 14, later that afternoon, the disciples came to Jesus and said, it's going to be dark soon and the people are hungry, but there's nothing to eat here in this desolate place. You should send the crowds away to the nearby villages to buy themselves some food, right? Matthew 15, what do the disciples say? Where in the world are we going to find enough food in this desolate place to feed this crowd? See, again, I don't understand. Like if I was a disciple, I probably would have written this in the second feeding, Right? So Jesus does this great. The first one I understand, the disciples like, I don't even know where we're going to get all the food, right? Now, the second feeding, if I was a disciple and I was writing the gospel and I just wanted to give it a little bit of flavor, you know, just a little bit of. We brought to Jesus fish bones and breadcrumbs, right? And he took the fish bones and the breadcrumbs and he multiplied the fish bones and the bread. You know what I mean? You'd want to like kind of doctor it up. But what do they say? They are doing the exact same thing that they just did. Where are we going to find the food? Where are we going to get the food? Uh, St. John Chrysostom, the old school, this guy's like from the 400s. What a great quote. Admire in the apostles their love of truth, though they themselves are the writers. They do not conceal their own great faults, and it is no light self-accusation to have so forgotten so great a miracle right? The disciples forgot and we forget and and they record it and they just tell it how it is and they record their own blunders. And so often we try and hide and conceal and justify and rationalize and doctor our stories and tell little half lies and half truths, right? The disciples just say, Matthew 14, you know, Jesus does this great miracle. Matthew 15, we're still clueless about this kind of stuff. And it's such, and we admire that. It's inspiring that these guys record this. Um, James 15 instructs us to, to I love how um, this, this, this is a passion translation. Tell each other the wrong things you have done, right? Your mistakes, your faults, your blunders, your sins. And then pray for each other. Do this so God can heal you. Anyone who lives the way God wants can pray and great things can happen right? Great things can happen. So we, again, look at this and we say, we say, Jesus, the disciples, they just recorded it how it was. Help me to just be truthful, to be honest. When I make a mistake, when I blow it, when I have a blunder, and I just want to confess that, you know, God, this this is how it is. And that is the way that we find healing from the Lord Um, and power in prayer too, right? Um, lastly, Brian, I like that, man. You got to get us stand up, give us an amen, some clap. <laughs> That's it, right? You just confess it and you say, hey, this is what it is. And 
we record it and we're honest about it and God heals us and we have power in prayer as a result of that. The last one is, the, I, I call it this, this asset-based ministry. What would we be without a good quote from Mr. Dale Bruner? Uh, Bruner asked this question. He says, what do we have here in hand, however slight, that we can offer to our Lord for service of the world? Um, and I think I need to do a whole sermon on this at some point. Uh, a few weeks ago, we were talking here as a church, like how can we continue to expand and reach out into the community and, 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 and meet the needs of the community, right? What are the needs of the community and how can our church meet the needs of the community, right? What asset-based ministry does is it kind of turns the table a little bit on that, right? And we ask, what assets, what fish and what loaves do we have, what gifts, talents, passions are here amongst us, and then how can we bring that to the community? This is a good question to ask right now with, with a lot of the upheaval and the things that are going on with the coronavirus. What do we have within our church? What, so to speak, fish and loaves, what gifts, talents do we have within our church, and how do we bring that to the community, right? Um, there is this movement, and it's called, again, Asset ABCD, Asset-Based Community Development, and, and they're all about this, and you can actually just kind of go online. Some friends of mine were doing this when I was doing the, the um, apprentice program in, in Kansas. There were some friends in Kansas doing this, um, this asset-based community development. But this is, I think, a better way to look at it because sometimes when we look at the needs, let me give an example of the needs. Let's say we go to the neighborhood and we go on Facebook and we say, hey, what are the needs of the community, right? What, what does this community need? And the community says, the community says, you know what we need? We need... We need night patrol. We have people stealing scooters and, and breaking in. And we need people, we need you guys, if you want to serve us, we need you to go on night patrol. You need to patrol the neighborhoods and make sure that nothing bad is happening, right? And we realize that this is the need of the neighborhood. And so then I stand up here and I look at you guys and I, I, I guilt you into it. And I say, hey, if you want to be great, you're going to have to be a servant. This is your chance to be a servant, driving around at 2 or 3 in the morning and making sure no, nobody's breaking. By the way, if you saw somebody break, like Dietra, you're driving around at 2 in the morning, you see somebody breaking in, Dietra's like, uh, what am I going to do now? <laughs> right? And, and so, the, you know, and, and we look at this and, you know, this is the need. Hey, Donna, it's time to pick up your cross and deny yourself. I'm going to need you for that 4 a.m. shift, right? And so we look at this kind of, say, need-based ministry, Right? And this is what the neighborhood needs. We need this patrol, right? or we need this happen, or we need that to happen. And sometimes there's some value in that. right? But on the second hand, if we ask ourselves, if we turn the tables and we say, okay, God, what gifts have you given me? What, what's with me? What, have you, what have, do we have to give to the world through Jesus' name? Right? And we look at our ass, assets. We look at what we are, our gifts, our talents, our passions. I'm just looking at this church. Some people in this church love to cook, right? Some people in this church, um, I was thinking about when we do the 4th of July bike decoration, one of my favorite moments is I just bring all my bike tools and my bike stand, and I get to work on bikes, right? I, I can give that. That is an asset, a gift that I have. Some people in this church um, are good mechanically. Some people in this church um, have free time, can help. You know, we all have these assets, these gifts. We all have these fish, these loaves that we just say, God, here is what you've given me, my passions 
and here is how, how I will use them in this world, in this church, in this neighborhood, amongst my family. Does that make sense? All right, that's enough. Um, and we'll do this in a, in a rather quick, we'll spend the next 10 minutes, we'll be done. So five minutes uh, peer-to-peer discussion and five minutes group discussion. Imagine Jesus stays around in Jewish communities, never traveling to the Gentile, never goes to the Decapolis. How would that change the trajectory of our faith if you just kind of want to think in big theological terms? Is there a symbol you hold on to that draws you closer to Christ? You have a necklace, you have um, maybe a rock on your desk or something that's on your refrigerator or something that helps draw you closer to Christ. Um, and then these kind of three smaller points, the wisdom of stability, recording our blunders, asset-based ministry, which one resonated with you most and why. And then who is the person in your life whom you can share your faults or your blunders with? So take two, three minutes, and then we'll have some discussion.